Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you would like to support our ministry, head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash theparticularbaptist. And I want to give a, a quick shout out to our Patreon, uh, Stephen. Thank you for your constant support, brother, of our ministry, and uh, we appreciate your kind words and, and interaction. Um, but today we're going to be talking about um, kind of a follow-up, or it is a follow-up to our debate that we did back in 2020. Um, I think it was in May of 2020. Hard, it, hard no, to it believe it was so October. long. October. Oh, it was October. That's it right. October. Yeah, because it was around your birthday. I remember. It was on my birthday. Well, on now, birthday? now everybody oh. will now know what my birthday is. <laughs> John, yes, like, it was oh, on my birthday. You'll start getting uh, weird fan mail and stuff, right? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Definitely. <laughs> um, but yeah, we had a mod. It was a moderated debate, actually. We we put quite a bit of thought into it. Um, Andrew Warwick, who's been on the show multiple times, uh, moderated it for us, and we we were timed. And I think we had like ten minute opening statements. We had cross examination. We had closing statements. We tried to make it as formal as possible, um, but. Yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting experience. Lots of preparation went into that, um, and that kind of came out of um, you know discussions. I think Sean and I were having. Um, I know Sean had recently, at the time, I think you had switched positions from the modern critical text position to a confessional text position, and that's kind of I think where it all started in terms of our discussion and the debate. Yeah, I switched positions. It was either the end of January or early February of that same year, 2020. So okay. going into the debate, I had only held the position for, um, what would that be, like um, eight months, wow. something like that? Yeah, it was really short. Yeah. yeah. And so we we kind of wanted to come together and, and formalize it and be like, hey, let's do, you know, let's do a debate on this. Um you know, and then I was coming from more of the the modern text position um, at the time, relying heavily on uh, kind of material from James White, which I, I think was helpful at the time. Um, but uh, but yeah, so we we kind of came together. We had the formal debate and then we had some follow up uh, blog articles that we did kind of formalizing our position sean uh took i think it was your paper your cbts paper and you put it into the blog post yeah um, yeah and i had interacted with that in the debate that was kind of what i was addressed that was your public material and i was i was addressing it um and interacting with it um and then i wrote an article um kind of taking my notes from the debate and expounding upon it and putting some more of my thoughts in it so we went back and forth for a little bit on it um, but we've kind of, at least for me anyways, we've kind of developed our views over time, either becoming stronger or some things have been clarified or changed. Um, so it, cause it's been a few years, you know, and, and you're studying, you're learning, you're reading, you're listening and, you know, things kind of settle in your mind more. Um, so Sean, I guess maybe we'll start with you since our debate, what are some things that maybe have changed if any at all, um, or anything that's been solidified more for you from your position? It would definitely be more uh, things that have solidified. Um, it was interesting. I wrote out um, uh, three things that I felt that I had uh, greatly developed since the debate. But um, this morning, I actually went back and listened to the debate. And I was like, oh, no, I guess I did sort of hold that position already. 
Um, oh, oh, yeah, no, that's exactly the way I would have said it. That's 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 really good. Um, so I, I guess the, the timeline has become a little bit blurred in my mind about when I came to certain conclusions and not. But um, uh, the well, I'll go through the two things that um, I still uh, that I thought I had uh, I had changed since then or developed more since then. Um, and then uh, uh, but I really hadn't. And then I'll, I'll go through the third thing, although. It, we, we really didn't bring it up in the debate that much, so I don't know um, exactly what I was thinking at the time on that, although I have a, a sort of a, a recollection. Um, so at the, at the time, I thought I had a more egalitarian view of the TRs in the sense that any edition was just as good as the other. Um, in re-listening to the debate, I, um, I did hear that I was sort of... Uh, I was a little bit more negative on Erasmus's uh, TRs, of which I would I would agree. Um, I do remember thinking at, at what point, whenever whenever it was around that time, that um, because people had presented the argument, oh, the TRs get better over time, um, that there's there's an improvement, and that smacked to me too much of the King James only thought that like, oh, the Bible was purified until it hit the the final form in the KJV, right? Um, cause you'll, you'll have the Tyndale and then that was purified. It was purified seven times. And then you have the, the KJV and that, that struck me as, as being wrong. I know that's, that's, that's clearly not what I'm <laughs> talking about when it says purified seven times, like, I, like that's wrong. And the, 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 the way that it was, the, the TR editions were being discussed, it was reminiscent of that. So I, I rejected it. I'm like, no, well, um, any TR edition is as good as the other. I've since come to the, the opinion that that is not the case, that um, mm. Stephanus and Beza's are, are much better than Erasmus's. Um, not that Erasmus is terrible, but you do have issues with Erasmus. For example, the fact that at least in the first edition, uh, I think uh, specifically at the end of Revelation was corrected in the second edition, but at least in the first edition, he did have to back translate from the, the Latin Um like, like I said, that was correct. I think that was corrected in the second edition. And you can tell by the fact that the end of Revelation in the second edition doesn't match the end of Revelation in the first edition. But at the very least, I can't say that that first edition is on is on par with the other editions that, uh, of the TR that don't have Latin back translations in it. Now, um, the first edition is never used in any translation, as far as I'm aware of. The first edition of Erasmus, as that is, is um, uh, the second edition, and that's used by Luther for his Bible. Mm -hmm. um, but that gets into the, the, the point, right? Well, if these editions aren't even necessarily all used the same, would I expect them to be as good one to another? Um, and uh, actually, in terms of Protestant translations at the time, the, the number one edition that was used for them was Stephanus's uh, Regi edition. Um, so uh, the fifteen fifty. Yeah, the fifteen fifty. Yeah. So um, just looking at that, I would expect that to be of a, a better quality. And looking at their methodology, I think that uh, Stephanus and Beza did do a better job than Erasmus did. Erasmus is a little too naturalistic, although I said otherwise in the debate um, that he was theological, and he probably is more theologically minded than um, than uh, modern textual critics. But having studied the issue a little bit more, it seems to me that, um, especially Beza, Beza is the one that's most in line with how I view the text, that he's perfectly willing to take 
theological reasons for adopting a text as opposed to evidential manuscript uh, reasons. The the one I would bring up is Luke 2.22, whether it's the days of her purification or the days of their purification. In Beza's annotations, he um, explicitly says, hey, the, the manuscript evidence for uh, their uh, purification is way better. Her purification has, I think he mentions two of them that read that way. One of them is the Computensium Polyglot. Um, but he's like, well, theologically, it has to be her purification because there would be no their purification according to the, the law of Moses. Therefore, that's the one I'm going with. And that's the way I think about it. So even differences in methodology, I would say that Stephanos's and Bezos are, are better editions of the TR. Now, Stephanos, is, uh, it's a little bit harder because I don't think he wrote annotations or at the very least, we don't have a lot of what his thinking was as opposed to. Beza. I don't think so. He yeah. did have the he did have the footnotes in the 1550 on the variant discussions, mm -hmm. but I don't think he was necessarily dogmatic. Mm -hmm. It was more of an apparatus. Mm -hmm. But at the very least, I, I look at his edition and I think it's it's much better than um, definitely the earlier editions of Erasmus. Although the fact that they all are basically the same shows that this is the tradition they inherited, right? Even if Erasmus might have some problems there, he's, he's basically in line with the rest of them. And so that it, it, they all bear evidence to the, uh, the tradition they inherited from the Greek manuscripts. Um, and I guess I, I, I sort of um, already started touching on this. I think my, my thoughts about theological textual criticism has, has developed. Um, to the point where, uh, well, I would have said I was okay with theological categories. I think at that time I was still denying um, Bezos' reading of Revelation 16:5, um, who was and who is and who is to come, as opposed to who was and who is, is and is holy, um, because we have literally no surviving manuscript evidence for that today. Now, Bezos references in his annotations, oh yes, I had a, I had a manuscript that read that way, but. Uh, we don't have that, right? We don't have anything that looks like that. So I'm really going to the bat saying like, this is correct because, well, I, I do have evidence in the sense of it's in Beza, right? But it's also correct because of the theological underpinnings of that, that this is a reference uh, to the Trinity and that, uh, or um, to God's nature, I should say that he is who was, who is and is to come and that and holy throws off the, the entire thing there. Um, so I think I've developed and become more okay with, uh, with that sort of thing. Um, and the last thing that I, I think I've developed is my view of the Septuagint. But, um, before I get into that is, do you have any comments on anything I've said so far? No. Well, um, I guess the thing on Erasmus is interesting. Um, because Yeah. I, I think that's interesting that you bring that up because um, I, I do think that you do need Erasmus's uh, works in order to formulate a TR tradition. Um, but it is interesting that you guys do, at least you, I don't know about Dr. Riddle. And I, I referenced Dr. Riddle because he kind of, he represents that position in large and there are, it's not a monolithic uh, stance, the confessional text, or there's different views within it, but I think he represents kind of the main crux of that position um but it is interesting that you guys do make a distinction between you know erasmus is being not as good as some of these guys and that later on there was a development in terms of the theological position of the text 
Um, not saying it's a bad thing. It just, I guess it's, it's good that you're realizing that or that that is more pronounced than, than maybe it was before. I will say that um, like for Stefanos's 1550, he didn't use Erasmus. He lists um, like 13 manuscripts or 11 manuscripts. I can't remember the number that he used. Um, and he doesn't, he, though none of them are Erasmus essentially. So he is an independent witness. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say that Erasmus starts the TR tradition as much as it is. They've all, they're all working with what they've received, um, which is the Greek manuscripts. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess, oh, go ahead. So you would disagree with Mueller because Mueller says that, um, Stefano's 1550 was a reissuing of um, Erasmus's work. He says that, and talk about the TR, that it's the standard Greek text of the New Testament published by Erasmus 1560s and virtually contemporaneously in the Confidentium Polyglot um, and subsequently reissued with only slight emendation by Stefano's 1550, Beza 1565, and Elsevier 1633. Um, so, yes, I'm trying to look up uh the the manuscripts that he used yeah the editia regia okay um yeah so he lists how many how many manuscripts he uses 16 manuscripts as he as um his sources um none of them are uh none of them are erasmus one of them is the computensium polyglot but none of them are erasmus's edition i i i do believe that an earlier an earlier work of his was based on Erasmus. Um, but in terms of the 1550 edition, I think that he did that totally independently. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, you, you could argue either way, I guess you could say he used different manuscripts, but had kind of the same text, especially since it came later. Um, and it's very similar, but with slight differences, it's still part of that received tradition, I guess, oh, even if Stefanos used different manuscripts to come to his conclusions. Yeah, no, I definitely agree that it is part yeah, of that yeah, received yeah. tradition. And that might be what Mueller is getting at. It's mm -hmm. kind of, it's part of that entire TR tradition that mm -hmm. kind of spawned on the scene with Erasmus's work. Um, and then was carried, you know, the work was carried on by these other men. That might be mm -hmm. what he's talking about, but he does seem to to indicate that there is a reissuing of Erasmus's work, even if done independently. Mm. Well, okay, um, that's interesting because the way I, I view it is that they're they're two independent witnesses um, to the the same tradition, right? Because the uh, Editia Regia it's called Regia Regia meaning royal because um, Stephanus borrowed for the most part manuscripts from the Royal Library in France, right? So mm -hmm. um, and I don't remember where the the bulk of Erasmus's manuscripts were coming from, if they were from England or because I think he spent time in the Netherlands, if they were from the Netherlands. But um, I, I don't know. But I would say that they're independent witnesses and the fact that they both come to very similar texts um, indicates that, you know, this is this is what was being received by the church. Um, now, Stephanus uh, does reference Erasmus. He clearly did have it in front of him. Uh, I, I couldn't tell you what exactly that. Uh, or did I say Stephanus? I meant Beza. Did I say Beza? No, you said Stephanus. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Beza definitely had Erasmus. Beza definitely used Erasmus yeah. a lot. Yeah. yeah. He relied heavily on yeah. him. Yeah. And he did use Stephanus too. Yeah. Um, and he did see 
um, kind of Stefano's text, at least by and large, as kind of the, you know, this is what we've received, right? This yep. is the received text. Even though he didn't call it the text of Receptus, he, he saw it as, as a text that's been received. Um, and then, you know, he made each would make uh, conjectures and emendations as he saw fit. But he definitely I think he relied more on Stefanos than he did Erasmus. Mm -hmm. But he tried to use kind of both of that tradition. I, I do want to clarify because you're right. He did use uh, conjectural emendations. But what he meant by it is not the same thing we mean by it because we hear conjectural emendation and think, oh, there's no there's no reference whatsoever. Uh, what was it? Uh, there's no there's no manuscript ev evidence whatsoever, and I think he had a different view. But now I'm actually struggling to remember on what that was. So my understanding I'll is that he did he did make plenty of conjectures. Um, uh, and, I'll, I mean I'll that's the definition of conjecture. You know, you're making you're making a assertion about a certain reading without you're you're not citing any manuscript evidence to support. You're just saying this is what I think it means or what it should say based on whatever it is but it's there's no manuscript evidence to support it so we might have to have a follow-up to the follow-up because i remember nah. somebody disputing his it might have been jeff riddle actually disputing what he meant by a conjecture and that it wasn't a pure conjectural emendation no no manuscript evidence whatsoever um but now i'll, I'll have to go back okay yeah all right um well, in that case, I'll, I'll just finish off. Um, the The last thing I'll I'll say is um, my uh, my view of the the Septuagint and its quotations. Um, I don't know if if I had this fully thought out yet or not, um, because you'll often hear that you know the Septuagint, um, uh, the New Testament authors quote the Septuagint. They don't match exactly. Therefore, we should be okay with. Um, uh, we don't need to have specifically the words. Um, as long as the the concepts are are preserved, um, if the New Testament authors are okay with the general the general um, concept by quoting an Old Testament quotation that doesn't ma exactly match, then we should be okay too. And I've come to the conclusion that I don't um, I don't necessarily know that they are quoting the Septuagint, which might sound odd um, to our, our uh, listeners, but. Um, there's evidence to say that what we have as the Septuagint is um, is uh, has been modified by later Christians, for example, and I have it on my phone, which is over there, uh, mm -hmm. unfortunately, so I I won't be able to to read it. But um, in the Septuagint version, I think of I think it's Psalm 13. You have part of Romans stuck in. You have uh, Paul's his uh, vice list in Romans three. Um, there's no one that does good, no, not even one. That entire list has been st stuck into psalm 13 um which leads to the question well, well how did this get here um and i don't i've never heard anybody try to make the case that oh you know um this is the way it originally read there are uh, i think um uh, uh pastor decker on his uh episode with us mentioned that there are two late hebrew manuscripts that read that way but they're late um uh so it, it truly appears that somebody took part of romans and inserted it in the, uh, the psalm and if that's the case, then all of a sudden it becomes suspect anywhere that um, we have a quotation that appears to match the Septuagint. Um, how, how would we know if that's the case or not, right? Um, it could be very well uh, that a later editor moved it to be more in line with, um, with how the New Testament reads. Um, and we don't have any BC Septuagints to, to look at. We have two fragments in the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, but they are fragments. 
and they might not even be Septuagints because they don't match the Septuagint um, that we have today. So when you have Codex uh, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Too. Yes. Yeah, but they're 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 uh, post uh, post Christ, right? So if there was right. any editing that could happen, it might have already happened to them. Although the, they are obviously the earliest complete ones, I think that we have. Yes. Um, so uh, I I don't know. I've gotten a little bit more, more refined on how I view the the text. The, the question then becomes what what is going on? Why do the why do the texts not match? And having reviewed the data, I think oftentimes the, the New Testament authors don't quote the way that we do in the modern era, where it's an exact quote. They will do theological interpretations in their quotes. Um, for example, when in Acts 1, Peter quotes from the Psalms to say um, uh, uh, that uh, this is prophesying Judas and his betrayal and what we're supposed to do. Um, I can't remember which one it is. I think it might be, um, I think it's let his camp be desolate. Well, if you go back to the original, it's let their camp be desolate, right? Um, he's making a theological application to um, to the specific context, and he's not quoting it exactly the way it is in the Old Testament, but we recognize, well, that's that's correct, right? Um, he's, he's, it's perfectly appropriate for him to do so. So when you have the idea in mind that they might be doing theological quotations and not necessarily word for word, the problem goes away. We're not left with saying, oh, well, both of these are valid uh, renderings of the Old Testament or valid textual trends, uh, textual traditions in regards to the Old Testament. So no, one is the original words and one is a theological interpretation of them. Um, so there is no issue of okay, well, we don't necessarily need the words. We need the concepts, if that makes sense. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. So at what time would you would you estimate that the Septuagint could have been changed? Because um, we definitely see like the, the King James authors, mm -hmm. you you know, seeing significant, if you look at the preface of the King James, they're seeing significance in the Septuagint. Um, and then, you know, what, what version, I guess, of it would you say that would have been changed um, in what time? That is an interesting question. I don't know. Uh, okay. I, it's not like I have a, oh yeah, by this date, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that would be important in the discussion though. Like if yeah. it's, if it's like, you know, a postmodern or like post enlightenment kind of change, then I can see how that could be a problem. Oh no, but no, 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 no. Something that changed. Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely not that late. It's um definitely, well, let's put it this way. Whatever the earliest um, copy we have that has, contains the Psalm that uh, has the, the part of Romans stuck into it would be the, the early or the, the latest, I could say that there was a change there. Um, and I don't know if there was a, like somebody did like one big go at it, you know, that would seem unlikely to me or potentially you had updates as time went on with different scribes being like, uh, this doesn't read the same way. I remember the new Testament. I'm going to change it. And they did that individually. There's no, there's no way for me to know that. Um, the point is more so that, at the very least, I have to be skeptical anytime somebody comes and says, oh, this is a quotation of the Septuagint. It's like, well, well, how do you, how do you know? How do you know it's, it's not uh, the Septuagint was changed um, to match the New Testament? I don't think there's a good way to know. Um, you have to sort of assume, well, what we have is exactly the way it was when it was translated in um, whatever it was, like 200, 300 BC. Um, that's, that's another thing, actually. Um, the original Septuagint was just the, the first five books. The earliest commentators who talk about it refer to it as the first five books. 
And then at some point later, it begins to be referenced as the whole Old Testament. And you can tell it's not trans, uh, the port parts of the Septuagint aren't translated by the same people because they have different quality uh, levels of translation, right? Uh, for instance, I've heard it said the Psalms are not nearly as well translated as the first five books were. Um, so even then, if you have books being um, added later to it, well, how do you know that it wasn't even added after uh, the BC era? So, so you would, so you might even say that the Septuagint may have been changed to change to match whatever the apostles wrote in their quotes of the Old Testament yes. in the New Testament. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you will give me one second, I'll actually grab the, uh, sure. the quotation I'm referencing from the Psalms. Yep. One second. See, I thought I was doing the right thing by uh, plugging in my phone to charge. And then ah. I remembered, oh, no, I actually I did need that. <laughs> um, so let's see. Hopefully I still have it up in here. Uh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, it was Psalm 13 in the Septuagint, um, which the, the ordering of the Psalms is different in the Septuagint. So this would be Psalm 12 in, uh, in the uh, English Bible, but Psalm 13 for the end, a Psalm of David, the foolish one spoke in his heart. There is no God. They destroy and are aboard in their practices. There is no one doing goodness. There is not even one. The Lord looked uh, from heaven upon the sons of man to see if there is one who understands or one who seeks out God. All have turned aside together. They become useless. There is not one doing goodness. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they have dealt treacherously with one another. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are quick to pour out blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and they know not the way of peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Um, now the language is is slightly different because you know it's a it's a translation. Um, it doesn't match exactly probably what we would remember from our own translations in uh, Romans three, but the the Greek text is actually uh, identical. Um, I'm reading from the, the Lexham English Septuagint here. If people want to look it up, the Greek text is identical, right? And we all we all sort of recognize that flow of uh, flow of text that Paul has put in there. So it's interesting. That's at least one example. And I think there's another one where it appears that somebody just lifted part of Romans and uh, uh, put it or part of the New Testament and just put it in the Septuagint. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, I'll be honest, I'm not. Um, I'm not as well read up on the Septuagint issues. Um, so I can't really speak to that, but I will definitely look into that further. That's very interesting. Um, I don't think whatever position you take on that, I don't think it's necessarily compromising to either of our positions. No, I wouldn't um, say so. But no. it's, I think it is a helpful discussion because it is commonly referred. Um, I think another place is like Hebrews chapter eight, I believe. Yeah. Where there yeah. is a quotation that yep. is not exactly the same. I think it's with Jeremiah 31. The quotation of Jeremiah 31 doesn't read exactly the same in Hebrews 8 as it does in the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, and that's another example I think that's given. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll definitely have to look into that more because mm -hmm. um, I'm definitely not as up to speed on the Septuagint issues. And I don't necessarily fall on one side or the other. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still out, you know, kind of on the fence with regards to Septuagint. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but, for the the TR position, or I shouldn't say TR for the confessional text, because now we're going to talk about the Masoretic text. Um, for the confessional text position, it's very important that preservation happens in the original language texts. Um, so right. to say that, like, oh, actually, um, the uh, the preservation here happened in the Greek version, the Greek copy. Um, that's extremely problematic because like, oh, well, we don't have any Hebrew copies that say this, but uh, the Greek preserves the exact wording correctly here. Um, it, it runs entirely contrary to the position. And ultimately, I would say that um, that's there's a couple of things that are, that are problematic with that. A, now we have to give credence to Rome because Rome's whole position was like, hey, you, you guys are trying to, uh, you Protestants are trying to look at the, uh, the manuscripts, um, but they're, uh, you know, they're, they're corrupt. You need the, the Latin. And the Reformed response was, no, 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 no. The, the, the manuscripts contain the true readings. We're able to identify them. And we should be going back to the original sources. We should be going back to the original Hebrew and mm -hmm. uh, uh, Greek. We shouldn't be relying on a translation. But to say that the Septuagint actually holds the correct reading and not the the um, not the uh, sorry the Greek uh, contains the correct reading, not the Hebrew, is actually to subtly give credence to the uh, the uh, Romish uh, the Roman Catholic uh, position, at least at the time of the Reformation, that no translations are valid, and in fact, like this is the inspired translation essentially when it comes to the Latin Vulgate. It's also it's more reminiscent of a King James only position where like. Well, the English is the, the final authority here, you know, um, where it's like, well, the Greek is the final authority, even though that's not the original language. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and, and I would, you know, just hearing it, you say it, I think I would tend to agree with that. Um, and that's kind of, you know, kind of, I think, a segue into my side. So, you know, I'm not when we're talking about modern critical texts, I do hold to uh, paragraph chapter one, paragraph eight of our confession. I do believe God has preserved his word in both the original languages and that should be our authority hebrew and greek um i don't think that we should necessarily put i don't think that we should put any um moral oughtness to a specific text like in terms of the the tr versus uh, the modern critical text i think we can use all of those things to be helpful in understanding what the word of god is and that god has preserved his word in that in the entire manuscript tradition and text tradition not just one um, so I, I kind of take some of the, the elements from Sean's position. We do agree, I think, on the theological foundation. We just come to different conclusions. Um, when it comes to some of the things that have changed, um, I think one thing that's changed for me is I did rely, I think, too much on James White. Um, and I, I think that James White has some very helpful things from the textual side, but I think he's wrong on certain things. For instance, um, when it comes to discussing Scribner, I think that James White is just flat out wrong when he talks about Scribner back translating. Uh, he was really back translating from the King James to the Greek. That is historical garbage. Um, and I'm willing to be corrected on that. Um, and actually, it was after listening to Dr. Riddle recently at the, the Kep Pure in All Ages conference, he did a lecture on that, specifically addressing that issue. And he went through the historical uh, evidence of, of Scrivener and uh, really put that to bed. So, you know, that's an area where I've developed. I think that um, James likes to throw sometimes, and, and we're seeing this now in other areas, not just the textual issue, but 
uh, like the doctrine of God. He, he just likes to throw certain quote factoids around and not necessarily, um, you know, back them up again. That's not to say that everything he says on the textual side is, is wrong. I think he, he has some helpful things, um, especially when dealing with King James only ism. Um, I think he's very helpful in that regard. Um, but I, I think historically he's not always on, on par when it comes to that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, go ahead. If you don't mind me jumping in real quick. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, if you want my opinion of it, it seems to me that he learned and maybe it's because he went to a liberal seminary and he heard this there. I, I'm not exactly sure. He, he went learned, to Fuller, right? Yeah. He did go to Fuller okay. at least for undergrad. Uh, um, or I guess that wouldn't be undergrad, but what, whatever. He got his master's uh, and his PhD elsewhere, I believe. Um, um, oh, what was I going to say? Oh, um, Scrivener. Oh, Scrivener. Uh, no, it was. Uh, oh, his his factoids. He'll he'll say a oh, lot yeah. of factoids that um, I'm sure he he heard somewhere. It's not original to him. He's not making it up but that aren't historically accurate. And I don't think he's ever gone and actually looked up the historical basis for them. For example, going back to the, uh, the, the last 16 uh, or the last uh, six verses of revelation, right? It's like, Oh, it got put in to the, um, uh, he back translated it. And then it just went forward from there. Well, all you have to do is compare Erasmus's second edition and his first edition note that they're different and say like, okay, well, this doesn't really make sense that this would be a thing that um, it, it never got corrected. And I know he's actually changed his position slightly on that uh, based on pushback. Um, he's, mm. uh, he originally in the King James said that Erasmus just never went back. Um, now he's saying, oh, well, the, uh, the Aldine printers um, made a mistake and accidentally used Erasmus's first edition in his second edition. And that's why it never got fixed, which again, that just flies in the face of what the historical data is. Like, just look at them. And there's either, I think it's just one word that's different, but there is a word that's different in between them. So you can't say that these are like, well, it's identical because it's, it's literally not identical. And there's a, there's a several other, uh, Erasmus related anecdotes where he's just he's just not correct and they're they're commonly repeated so I'm not saying that like oh he made this up you know is that is purposely lying I'm sure he believes it because he, he heard it in seminary or whatever but they're just they're just not true so mm. yeah yeah they're James White is you know you, you got to be careful with what you take from him you know examine it don't just necessarily take it at face value um so yeah I, I think that my I relied too much on him. Um, I don't think it fundamentally changes my position, but it just I think that relying too much on on him as a source was not necessarily a good thing. Um, let's see what else we got here. I've been able to you know look at more of the confessional text side. I've especially more recently I took more of a deep dive into it, um, especially listening to uh, to Doctor Riddle again because he's kind he kind of represents that side. Um, I think that he has made his position more accessible in recent times with that conference, Kip Piranol Ages conference. Um, I mean, Word magazine, I'm sure, is helpful, but there's just so much there to try and mine through and, and pull out. So having that conference, I think, was helpful for me and just kind of getting good summaries of uh, their position in digestible uh, ways. Um, in, in, a, in a, looking at it from different perspectives, not just, you know, one particular aspect of the 
confessional exposition, but okay, let's talk about Scribner. Let's talk about First um, uh, John five seven or whatever it might be. So you kind of get a wide range of digestible uh, pieces of information from that position. Um, so that's been really helpful in understanding uh, that side. So diving into that position more in trying to understand it better, um, I think has been helpful. And then obviously, you know, it's refining my position too. Like I said, with Scrivener helping me to understand some of the historical stuff better. Um, so especially when you're talking about interacting with the other side, you want to make sure that you're actually representing the other side properly. Um, and I, I think in our debate, I did pretty good at uh, representing Sean's side properly, and, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, but I, I did interact with your paper specifically, mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't interacting with Dr. Riddle specifically. Um, but I think that, you know, in going to Dr. Riddle, and, and it's helped me to kind of uh, have a better, well-rounded view of the position as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, go ahead. You're going to say The one something. thing I'll say is, um, and this is specific to the debate, so I don't even know that... Well, I'll, I'll bring it up anyway. Um, yeah, I don't think you quite understood what I meant by the uh, the tradition, not the tradition, the uh, the text becoming solidified in the debate. Okay. Um, I think you had taken it more to mean like, oh, well, the text has become standardized, um, as opposed to what it was before when it was not standardized. Uh, what I what I mean uh, in my paper and what I, I mean in general when I say it's solidified is there's no there's no longer any um, you can't have the same sort of errors creep in with the printing press because like, we're not hand copying. So we're not liable to all the human errors that, uh, that came in. So I don't think you were purposely misrepresenting me or anything, but the way you were speaking about it and asking me questions indicated to me that you hadn't quite understood what I meant when I said the text had become solidified. Because from my perspective, um, the, the text received by the church is always stable, you know? Um, I don't make a radical distinction between the Byzantine text and the Textus Receptus, I think. And I think James White actually was even potential. Maybe it wasn't James White. Somebody made the the case that um, if you were to put a hand copied manuscript of the TR in front of somebody and ask them to classify what text families this is, they would say, oh, it's a it's clearly a Byzantine text because it is. It might have like one or two idiosyncratic readings, depending on which TR it was. But in general, it's a Byzantine text. So. Even yeah, I think well, I think everybody agrees with that. It's a it's yeah. a Byzantine text type at least. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think that the printing press made okay. Now we're in the position where we can really you know firmly establish what the text was. I think the text is was established even prior to that point. It's just now we're able to prevent certain types of errors from entering into the transmission. That but you sense? would but you would agree that there was a difference in methodology post printing press versus pre-printing press, right? I don't think so, no. Um, okay. Now, I, I think would, we would disagree on that, um, but okay. I would want to look at... Now, that, that gets sort of difficult because in terms of who's looking at manuscripts and making decisions, it's not like we have writings from them, but I, but I don't But they were think... having to make decisions regardless. Oh, yeah, they didn't yeah. Have printed text. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean so did the the men putting together the editions of the tr so do i right like if you bring to me hey stefanos reads this and Beza reads this what do you do i have to make a decision the, the right. special text position doesn't Absolutely. say oh all all decisions are good we, we never have yeah, to, yeah we i'm never not have saying to think that. about the, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you guys do yeah. at least at least I, I think with the riddle vein and in, in you would agree that there's still some sort of textual reconstruction, quote unquote, that has to be done within the TR itself. Because uh, um, you do have you do have to make a choice between run reading or another. Um, yes. even if you, and even Dr. Riddle, um, if you there's a um, uh, I don't know if you've watched it's a two part series where he talked with Peter Gurry and James Snap Jr. Oh, um, I, I um, it's called um, I wrote it's it been down. a while. Yeah, it's, it's called um, the text and transmission. Um, it's on YouTube. You can find. But in part, yeah, it, it, it's called the text and transmission. But in that series, um, Peter Gurry kind of pressed him on, you know, ma- I think it was about making choices within the TR. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, there in Jeff admitted that you still have to, you know, on a case by case basis, you'll have to look at the text to see which one is really the mm-hmm. text. It, there's Absolutely. still something that has to be done there. Um, you know, you, there is no certainty in terms of from your position in terms of um, the, the text on its face. You still have to do the work to find out which one is the certain text within that tradition. You guys would just believe that, you know, there is the the correct reading within that tradition. You just have to figure mm-hmm. out which one it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, w- I wouldn't like the, the term uh, reconstruct um, because to reconstruct implies that like it was at least the way it seems to be used um like it would imply that like oh we we didn't have it and now we're trying to reform it or re-get it um i think it's no I, I think it's because okay. you don't right. know exactly which one which one it is off the bat you can't look at the text mm-hmm. just at a glance and say well that's the that's the correct reading you still have to go and do the work and say this is the correct reading as opposed to this one and then standardize the correct reading as opposed to the one that's not that's what I mean by reconstruction. Like you don't have the text sitting in front of you as it sits necessarily as correct. You have to go back and, and figure out which one is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think that that would be what I mean by reconstruction. Okay. Okay. I'm fine with that then. Okay. Um, so yeah, that that's one area that, you know, I've kind of been able to dive into also looking at, um, you know, kind of the, the textual methodology of Bayes and Erasmus, I think, was really helpful. I don't know if you've read um, Kron's book. I need to, but no, I haven't. Okay, um, I it's not cheap. I, I no. it hurt really bad to get it in, in terms of the wallet, but um, extremely helpful book, and it it is really a you know a study in the TR. Um, but it, it goes through Erasmus's methodology, his annotations, and Bayes's annotations, and makes comparisons and contrasts between their methodologies. Um, mm-hmm. So this has been really, really, really helpful uh, from a historical perspective. Um, so just kind of diving into more of the methodology of the of the uh, some of the TR uh, editors, authors, whatever you want to say, um, I think has been helpful. Um, another thing that I kind of revised in my opening statement, at least in the re- or at least in the revised opening statement that I wrote in my blog article, um, I do rely. Um, you know, I talk about presuppositionalism as it's applied to the text. I don't remember if I brought that up in the debate. Do you, did I, Sean? Yeah, I did. OK. Yeah, um, I do think at least in my article that I wrote, the follow up, I do think I relied too much on an argument from silence um, as it came to dealing with um, what Van Til might have thought about the text. Um, and looking at that again, I think 
while an argument from silence in that sense, I don't think is necessarily bad. I think to put your entire argument on it is not necessarily the best thing to do. And at the end of the day, I don't think it matters whether Van Til believed that or not. I, I do think the transcendental argument applied to the text is a category error. I think that uh, from a Christian perspective, that which is the precondition of all things is God, not the scriptures. And I think to apply something um, of that nature to something that's not God is a category error. Um, so I think um, it's it's more of a fundamental uh, epistemological issue rather than just what did Van Til think? Um, so is because I wouldn't limit presuppositionalism merely to the transcendental argument for God. It's also a it's a theory of knowledge in general. Right. Um, and how do we know what we know? Well, the, the only sure foundation of knowledge is something that God has communicated to us, right? Because God is, he's, um, he is all knowing and all powerful. So he, he knows things and is able to communicate some things to us infallibly. So that's a certain foundation for knowledge. Whereas I, I don't have the, within me, the, the ability to, to know things apart from that, right? There's nothing apart from God that I could possibly, uh, um, use as a foundation for knowledge when it comes to uh textual criticism applying that to textual criticism um the scriptures themselves are the uh the lens by which we view things so um if because that's it's it's derivative of god's authority if it's god speaking then um it's derivative of his authority it's it's the highest authority in that regard so if it says something that would relate to textual criticism, that needs to be the first place that I, I go to, that the Bible speaks first before everything else. I'm not saying that um, the Bible, somewhere in it says like, oh, it's the TR, because obviously it doesn't. But I'm saying that the principles elucidated in the scripture would lead you to a, a TR position. And the final application of that to history would be like, okay, I, I recognize it's it's the TR tradition. Um, does that Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, I, I do think that it it goes back farther, though. I think the transcendental argument goes to it one step further into what substantiates everything in general, not just our knowledge of God or knowledge of things. And we would agree that there's knowledge of God that's outside of the scriptures, too, that mm -hmm. man uh, knows from God pr even prior to coming to the scriptures. Um, yeah. So yeah. I would I would continue to push it back even further um, to who God is as the foundation of that. And by definition, you know, with regard, and that really was uh, Van Til's foundation anyways, was God at the end of the day, uh, even yeah. though he did kind of, he did apply the principle of presupposition to the nature of scripture, at least. Um, he did, uh, he is using that concept of the, of the transcendental argument, which I think by definition um, requires us to take a step back rather than just starting at the scriptures. We have to start with God as the foundation of everything um, at which the scriptures do proceed from. And yes, it does carry the same authority, but from an epistemological point of view, ultimately it's going to start um, back with God as the foundation of, of everything, the precondition of everything. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there, there's some category error problems in there. I'll have to think about that. I'm not quite sure the, the distinction you're making there. Um, okay. Yeah, because for me because the scriptures bear yeah i guess there's a, a a logical priority in terms of god versus the scriptures but practically speaking because we'd agree that scriptures are in 
um, Barcellus brings this out in his book, Trinity and Creation. The scriptures in the form that we have them are creature, right? It, they're yes. not they're not mm -hmm. the divine essence. We would never say no, that. No. There, is a, yeah. there is a distinction there even between scripture and God. Mm -hmm. um, while scripture carries the authority because it, it's breathed out by God, it's his mm -hmm. word. We would never put it on the same level as God in terms of, you know, mm -hmm. ontological priority. Well, and I think well, that's really where the issue is. Let me let me ask you this. Um, when it comes to the evolution debate, you'll have evidentialists start talking about the evidence of, you know, X and X fossil or whatever. Or, right. You know, the planet has yep. to be this old because X, Y reason. And the, the typical um, presuppositionalist response is, well, the scriptures say X these form our worldview, we will interpret the evidence through that worldview. Do you think that's an appropriate application of uh, the presuppositionalist method? Um, if you're talking simply from um, a scientific perspective, uh, yes, I would say that, but I don't think that collapses the distinction I'm trying to make between God and the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Well, um, see, the, I, I yeah, sort of view the, the text um, debate as the same this the same sort of thing right where the scripture informs my worldview first and then i filter evidence through that that worldview right so you might have a majority of manuscripts that read x right but uh because of theological presuppositions i've generated from the text i uh i now have to discard that evidence i filter that evidence through the worldview so if the majority reading of manuscripts uh, produce a, a reading that has a contradiction in the Bible. Well, I know that God doesn't lie. He doesn't contradict himself. That's been generated from the scriptures. Therefore, I will automatically reject that reading on that basis. That's sort Although of what you have I mean. to assume that the other reading that you're using to interpret that variant is actually true, mm -hmm. which is the circular argument of your well, theological presupposition. Yes. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, it is. And, I, and but, I understand the difference between like, you know, big circles, small circles. I just yeah. think that when we're applying the ultimate where we're talking about the transcendental argument and we're involving mm -hmm. that in some way um i think it's a small circle to to argue simply from the scriptures as it relates to a textual critical method or to apply it to a specific text um when there's you know god who is the one who breathed it out and mm -hmm. created the scriptures as a foundation um Which, I, and i i think that would you know that requires you to take that extra step back would you say that the scriptures are self-authenticating? Um, yes, absolutely. Okay. So self-authenticating because of who they come from, not by yes. virtue of themselves. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not, yes. I'm not again. I, that that allows me to keep that distinction there, and still be consistent with self-authentication. It's self-authenticating because of who it comes from, not by virtue of itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that is where we have to. It still requires you to take a step back further. So you're saying you think my position conflates um, the two, conflates scripture and God, um, while I'm saying that there has to be a distinction between the two. Even though scripture carries the authority of God, it is not God, and therefore to apply the transcendental argument to scripture is a problem. Oh, so what, what aspect, so when you say the transcendental argument, what aspect of that is, do you think I'm applying to the the argument for scripture? Because for me, the transcendental argument is, yeah, you you ultimately you need a transcendent transcendent God, right? But right. I don't. When I say presuppositionalism, I'm not 
presuppositionalism doesn't equal the transcendental argument for God. But it has to involve it by definition. Mm -hmm. That that's kind of my problem. It, it's it's like a misapplication of presuppositionalism, in my opinion. All right. Well, I'll have to think through that. Okay. Before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, no problem. No problem. I know we're not, you know, we're, we're interacting with each other, but mm. we're not like getting into like, um, you know, necessarily like an exhaustive debate like we were. Before, yeah, yeah. It yeah. definitely gives us things to think about. We can go back and be like, OK, let me follow up on that. Um, but yeah. Um, let's see. I talked about Scribner. Um, yeah, I think those are some of the some of the main ones. And that's not necessarily that's not all of them, but I think those are some of the main ones um in terms of my development. Um let's see here. Yep, talked about presuppositionalism. Um I'm curious from the the TR position, you guys do rely quite a bit on uh John chapter 10, 27, right? The the sheep here oh. my uh, the sheep here, my oh, yes, yeah. as it relates yeah. to textual issues. I just well, want to clarify it, that. Um, as it relates to textual, it, it's important with, in with, terms of understanding which text, yeah, to take. Okay. yeah. So, for example, if there's a, a text that has been rejected by the believing church, we would ex we the sheep hear his voice, so we'd expect them to, in general, be able be identifying the the true text not maybe necessarily in every single individual jot but and tittle but it's the general um the general stream right um so if um the sheep reject the latin but take the take the greek right well that's that's sort of what we would expect the sheep hear the voice of christ they're not following a stranger um when you get to um older text types even though the 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 designation of text types is sort of falling away at the moment um it's unclear who produced a lot of these old texts that we have for example Vaticanus and Sinaiticus it's been asserted by people on my side and I think it's true that they contain Valentinian Gnostic readings in them and I would argue well the reason why they didn't get preserved into the into the Byzantine area era into the uh the TR era is because the sheep rejected them as being true readings um and now the fact that we're bringing them up again you know that's that's problematic by my position so um the sheep hearing voice may not be good enough to establish a specific reading in a specific spot although it, it might um uh for example i definitely remember reading when i was of the other position when i was of the modern critical text position being reading and i don't remember where it is now um uh reading a passage that i knew was um not in the modern critical text and it's um uh when uh the apostles ask if they should bring fire down upon the city and jesus says you not know you know not what manner you are of um for the son of man came not to destroy men's lives but to save them and that struck me as being from jesus that that was the word of god um so there's potentially a little bit of that going on but in terms of it's overlap with like, okay, well, you know, uh, the sheep hear his voice. Therefore I know revelation 16, five, that's not quite the same thing. It's not like a Mormon thing. Well, it's like, well, it sounds good to me. Yeah. Like, and that's the problem yeah. I can see if it's not checked. Right. Cause then yeah. you'll sound like Peter Van Cleet, right? Yeah. For the, 
which I know you disagreed with in terms of his methodology of, to some extent. Yeah. To some extent. Yeah. Like he was, he was definitely more, well, the spirit leads, the spirit leads, the spirit leads. And that's kind it, of it. It does. Um, um which, like, which I, I would have a serious problem with it. I don't believe that, um, you know, hearing the scriptures is, is only a spiritual endeavor. I think that there are, secondary means that are used to bring about that yeah content. that's 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 a good way and that's where it. van cleet kind of went off the rails and, and seemed to put those more to the side rather than seeing them as working hand in hand with the spirit's work yeah um, no the secondary means are, are definitely important and not to be right. neglected um like and then you do sound like a mormon right it, yeah. at the end of the day it's like well the spirit told me the book of mormon was true that's what you hear from mormons all the time oh the burnt you know I just knew this was the text. I know this is God's word. Like, yeah. how do you know that? That doesn't prove anything. For me, I can it, I can hold up I can hold up my NA twenty eighth and and say this same thing. You know, this is God's word because God told me it was. It doesn't prove anything. You have to go back and actually use uh, secondary means to figure out what that which one is valid and which one isn't. For me, there's like it's it's hard to separate the two, right? For example, like. Uh, it, it doesn't matter whether you agree or, th or not with the point. Um, the, the point in the abstract is probably fine. If First John 5, 7, if removing it creates a, a grammatical issue, then I'm going to say, well, it has to be in there, right? Um, that's, you could, I could make the argument that that's me saying that, well, Jesus would never speak to me in a way that has a, a grammatical issue. Therefore, that's how I know it's the one or the other. But I'm still reflecting a, a, something in the text that, that leads me to there. Or if I, um, what's, what's another good example of this? Um, if 99.9% uh, .9 of the manuscripts read one way, and it's, it's literally just Vaticanus reading the other way, I'm like, well, okay, well, the, the Jesus doesn't speak to his church in such a way that um, the word of God is hidden for a period of time. So therefore I'm going to say that like, this is the word of God, like the means by which we come to it is sort of inseparable from me saying, well, the sheep hear his voice, if that makes sense. Yeah. As long as I think that can be true, as long as there's a proper distinction made between primary and secondary causes, mm -hmm. um, you have to be yeah. careful about that. Yeah. Um, because that, that's also a confessional distinction and a reform distinction that's made. Yeah. Um, no, that's definitely uh, important. I kind of lost my train of thought there. We were talking about yeah. primary and secondary causes. Um, yeah, with re with regards to... Oh, John 10, 27. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I kind of struggled with that in terms of applying that to a specific text because Jesus is talking about his sheep hearing the gospel, right? Mm -hmm. And he ties the hearing of the text to whether or not you are a sheep. And so the question becomes, if someone doesn't take a particular text a certain way, does that call their salvation into account? I don't think you would say that, but I, I think it can lead no. to that. I think it can lead to that if it's not checked. Well, so um, do because Jesus ties the status of their sheep to whether they hear the voice of the shepherd or not. Um, well, and obviously you're not going to hear the voice of the shepherd perfectly, but yeah, if, yeah there's a whole bunch of people who are believers over here who think that, you know, this is probably more, this is more accurate than the TR. Does that call into question the status of those people's spiritual state? If they're not hearing the voice of the shepherd in the TR, 
but are saying they hear the voice of the shepherd. Well, I would, I would argue the same thing for um, any number of theological questions that don't affect salvation, right? Like with the baptism debate, right? I'm not going to say our, our pedo Baptist brothers are somehow, well, because they've gotten this wrong, they're not hearing the voice of the shepherd and therefore they're not Christians, right? Um, right. Well, that's because so Jesus applies this to the gospel, which is an important issue, not mm -hmm. to every issue about Christianity in general. Well, so I think it's a, a general principle because like the sheep hear my voice. That's a that's a general principle and they follow me. Not that like every single potentially even every single aspect of the, the gospel. Right. Like um, early reformers talk about justification in ways that aren't like quite right or they use examples that like maybe i wouldn't use i don't think it's because they didn't hear the voice of the shepherd right i think they're just wrong on a, on a minor they at least there. understood the basic concept yeah. they weren't like way out in left field about no, they were like no. anti right you know no. or something like they still at the base heard the voice of the shepherd it's it's just a you know there's a development of, of a greater understanding of the gospel mm -hmm. over time um but at the very least, they have to grasp it to some extent to be saved. I mean, that's what the scriptures say. If you if you don't believe the gospel, you're not going to be saved. You have to grasp mm -hmm. it, at least at a basic level. Mm -hmm. So I, that, that, I think, leaves room for, um, you know, um, some Im, uh, impreciseness in words and impreciseness in concepts. But they, they understand the basics and they grasp it. And, and I think that's what Jesus is getting at in 1027 is that it's the the gospel message is what they hear it, it's not a textual argument it's it's a salvific argument um and i even was i was looking this up with john gill and he would agree with me on that that it's it is talking about the gospel in, in terms of it working outwardly and inwardly um that jesus is talking about they hear that the the, the sheep the elect hear that and therefore are saved because jesus goes on to talk about he's giving the sheep eternal life and and uh they'll be saved they'll not be cast out etc um so okay yeah i've i think i've heard dr riddle use that verse before and i don't i under, i think i understand what he's trying to say but i don't agree with the theological application of it i don't think it's a, a proper use of the text um, um i'll re i'll reread it my i i just i do take it as sort of a um it is in support of the gospel but it, it is a general truth that he's saying that my sheep do hear my voice in general there's the this um the sense that oh yeah that that this is true from from jesus i hear that you know um even if it's not specifically like an element of the gospel but i will reread that and let you know okay context okay sounds good um were there any historical items you wanted to talk about surrounding like um uh one eight or anything like that you had potentially brought oh um and we're, I mean, we're my, just for audience sake we're talking about second london baptist confession of faith chapter mm -hmm. one paragraph eight which talks about the preservation of scripture and mm -hmm. i think it's the same paragraph and chapter in the westminster confession if i'm not there mistaken. yeah they're they're absolutely they're 100 identical yeah. yeah and the savoy as well um for me i don't even necessarily it, it makes sense in reformed baptist circles to talk about one eight but in general i don't necessarily say like oh well one eight says means this therefore you have to uh you have to hold to that because ultimately the, the scripture supports the position or not um i would just say uh read um this book here uh, i think it does a very good job of 
screen. Very good job of um, going through the historical data um, and why the uh, the um, framers of the confession, uh, in this case, the Westminster, because uh, Garnet Howard Mellon was a Presbyterian, uh, what they would have held around um, around the uh, issue. And I should probably read that for our people listening on the podcast and can't see the title of the book. Oh, has good the Bible, <laughs> yeah, Has the Bible been kept pure? The Westminster Confession of Faith and the Providential Preservation of Scripture. Um, now, is that, I'm sorry, um, oh, is yeah. that similar to um, how Ranahan treats so uh, 1 8? He mentions Milne, but he does it in, in the section about 1 8. But um, at least uh, Renahan's discussion of the autographa and apographa, I think, is, is very good. And I would very much agree that there. But does Milne use Mueller quite a bit too? Does he use the post Reformation reform dogmatic? Yes, I believe so. Okay. Um, although it's been a little bit since I actually read the book, but yeah, I believe so. Um, okay. But that so, coming, he's, so if you read this, you should get the general idea of what Milnes is trying to say too. Yeah. Yeah. Although okay. Milne is much more extensive. Um, oh yeah. yeah. This, and he's going to obviously come down dogmatically on a certain position. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Renahan is not doing that in his work, but no, no Renahan's Renahan's not. Um, no, but the, the, the I, he uses the term I think it, Renahan does practical univocity between the autographer and the apographer. The autographer being like the autographs, the originals, right, right. and the apographer being the copies. That copies, is the practical yes. univocity. I think that's that's a very important thing that you need to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Essentially, that the um, at least generally speaking, there was an understanding uh, that the apographer. You know, it carried the the same authority as the autographer because it contained the original readings, mm -hmm. um, even though they still believe that you still had to do some sort of textual critical methodology to mine out what the readings were. But they believe that they had the original readings. Um, and so, you know, you didn't need the autographer in order to, you know, say this is the word of God or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You could actually do that from mm -hmm. uh, the copies that were there. Yeah, but which means that they weren't interested in reconstructing the originals because they already thought they had it. Um, it was a uh, depends question. on who you talk to as well. Uh, Thomas Goodwin um, mm -hmm. would also would uh, who was the co-author of the Savoy Declaration mm -hmm. um, was fine with earlier um, with earlier manuscript evidence if he could have it. He wrote about it in his uh, The Glory of the Gospel, mm -hmm. you could find in his works. Um, so I, I don't think that's a monolithic understanding. And I, and I remember Dr. Renahan, uh, he wrote an article a long time ago, and I mentioned it in my um, my revised statement about how this issue of um, you know, textual criticism in the 17th century is not it, it's it's very nuanced and it's not a monolithic mm -hmm. um, understanding necessarily. And I would tend to agree with that. Um, not everyone just said, you know, yeah, OK, here's the TR. We got it this is our text. We're not interested in anything else. That's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it's much more nuanced. That's probably the general view that you would find, but it's not every reformed or every confessional person thought that mm -hmm. again, Thomas Goodwin, I think being, being a very good example of that um, with his use of uh, Codex Alexandria. I'll have to look into that again. I want, I, I want to say that, um, Ah, okay, yeah. Milne actually uh, talks about Thomas Goodwin, and in fact, one of his uh, uh, chapters is entitled "The Response to Goodwin's Doctrine of the Providential Preservation of Scripture." 
So now yeah. that's interesting. If he's responding to, I need to read that book. Mm -hmm. Um, no, I'll loan it to you if you want. Okay. Yeah, that would yeah. be great. Um, I've been eyeing it, you know, like, okay, <laughs> I probably should read this, but I haven't yet. Um, so he does have a chapter and they're responding to Goodwin. Was it Thomas Goodwin or was it John Goodwin? Actually, I think I might've gotten the wrong Goodwin. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, Tom, yeah. Thomas he, he, Goodwin is who I'm talking about. Okay. He yeah, was he has a, Mr. Divine and the co-author of this Void Declaration. Okay. Yeah, because he says discordant views, the interesting case of the unconventional John Goodwin. So I think that's oh, okay. actually who he's who he's responding well, to. Well, at there. the very least, that shows that there were those who didn't, who were yeah. maybe within the Reformed confessional tradition who didn't agree with that uh, overall position. Again, yeah. that just points to the nuance within there um, that it wasn't a cut and dry. Um, and I think that's. I think I would disagree with Mueller's uh, generalizations in terms of his usage of talking about the position in general. I think because um, he, he'll say like the Orthodox or something like that. And I, I think it, it, it would have been better to speak more generally rather than specifically. But, um, but now yeah. who's just now who's disagreeing with Mueller? Huh? I said now who's disagreeing ah, with Mueller? Ah, very funny, Sean. Very funny. <laughs> Hey, these are just men. We can yeah. we can disagree with them. We can be like, well, brother, you know, maybe you could have been a little bit more specific over here. This probably isn't uh, accurate completely, but no. Um, but yeah, so from the historical perspective, I think it's it's very nuanced, and I think there is quite a bit of um, different understandings. Like for instance, um, I did use Renahan's um, commentary for our discussion today. And he talks about Keech's understanding of preservation, which I don't think, which I think you and I probably, and maybe even Dr. Riddle would disagree with. He thought that preservation meant that all of the copies of the scriptures were preserved, not just uh, certain ones. Like every single copy was preserved. Um, um, I have to reread that. Cause I remember reading part of what he said. And I'm like, Oh yeah, this is great. Um, but I don't remember. That well, he only quoted, I think he only quoted a little bit of, of Keech. Um, but he does talk about that, um, within, I'm trying to find it here. I thought I had written it down. Um, I guess I didn't, but it's in the, it's in the section on paragraph one, uh, or chapter one, paragraph eight. Um, but he does talk about that. Um, but yeah, so there, I mean, there, there were different views going on at the time. It, it seems that there was a general understanding of preservation, but how that was applied was not necessarily mm. monolithic. Um, yeah, I think that's important. Well, I'll 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 close on this note because we're slowly running out of time. But I know Calvin yeah. actually underwent an evolution in his view of the uh, of how he viewed the text. Um, originally, he had more of an eclectic text view, and eventually came over to a more well. I mean, it's anachronistic to call it confessional text, but what I would call a more confessional text view. So even within men, they have a change in their views over time, which is honestly what we would expect. You know, that's all of church history. It's not like the 16th century is some uh, unique period in history where everybody had all the doctrines already laid out in front of them. No, no, um, no. Not that well, I even Mueller talks about um, how it was a, a late 17th century development to see change or inconsistencies only in the apographa, not in the autographa. Um, and I think it was probably earlier than that. Um, but I mean, you see that with Erasmus, for instance, he 
had no problem saying that there were um, contradictions in the original text were made by the uh, authors themselves. And so I have a little, little, little bit more sketchy on Erasmus than Basin's. Yeah. <laughs> Which maybe for a, a topic for another time, but I think does create problems for your position, but um, maybe we can have a separate episode where we specifically talk about Erasmus. Um, but I think you need to get the class, don't you, Sean? Yeah, yeah, and, uh, I got like... Okay, well, we'll close out then. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us today. Hopefully this didn't put everybody to sleep. I know it's it's kind of, it's very niche in terms of the discussion, you know, we're getting into textual issues, but, you know, they are important and, and we encourage you to study them. Um, but if you want more, I'll try to put the links to our... Um, our articles and our debate maybe in the uh, the description of the video. Um, and I'll also update our, at least my article with the video so that we can, you know, make sure there's proper clarification for anyone who goes back and reads our stuff. Um, and if you want, Sean, I can put it in your article too, just so it's there. People can, hey, here's some updates to my thoughts and yeah, sure. uh, here's a more update. Okay. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. Everyone have a great rest of your weekend and Lord's Day and we'll see you next week.